0: It's wonderful to to see you all this morning. When I first agreed to preach on this day, I didn't know for sure if there was going to be any faces looking back at me as I preached other than Matt's. And so I'm glad for the variety. Not that there's anything wrong with Matt's face. I also didn't know for sure that I was going to be able to, to be here for Steve's commissioning, and it's such a joy uh, to be able to be up here and formally welcome Steve officially into the community and to ministry here at Ivanrest Church. Obviously, you've been here for a few months yet, and uh, it's been wonderful to, to see you um, already doing wonderful mission uh, mission work here at Ivanrest Church and to, to see your heart, to get to know you a little bit, and I'm eager for everyone else to be able to get to know you uh, more as the days and weeks and and years uh, go by. So if you haven't met Steve, um, get ready. He's a a wonderful guy, and I'm excited for you all to get to know him. Um, And I am excited to to bring God's word to you this morning, which comes to us from Judges chapter 4. Um, We are beginning at verse 1. And we're going to read through the entire chapter, which is a slightly longer passage, uh, but it's chock-full of action, uh, and it is one cohesive narrative, and I think it's important for us to, to read it in its entirety and see what God is communicating to us today through the story of Deborah. So if you will turn with me to Judges Four, if you brought your own Bibles, otherwise, you can always follow along with us on the screens. Judges chapter four, beginning at verse one. Again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, the Israelites cried to the Lord for help. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, "'The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go.'" Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. but... Because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all of his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, if you remember him from a few verses earlier. Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come in, come my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord. I have another story for you, this one fictional. Eddie was a young American engineer, a man new to his trade and engaged to the love of his, of his life, Betty. Like most young people pursuing a new vocation and most soon-to-be-married young adults, Eddie was in search of a position that would introduce him into this new trade and also supply him and his beloved Betty with sufficient resources to put a down payment on a new home. Eventually, a position would come before him that would tick all of those boxes, but with one major drawback. You see, this position that was offered to him required a two-year-long stint uh, at a plant in Ireland. And so even though a two-year-long-distance engagement wasn't necessarily in the plans and was less than ideal, it became apparent that it was a necessity. And so Eddie left his beloved Betty and his familiar home of Tennessee uh, behind him, and he made the journey to the unfamiliar Ireland. During their time apart, uh, Eddie and Betty uh, communicated frequently through letters, but as time went by and the loneliness of separation became more and more acute, Betty began to anxiously fear that her dear Eddie was being true to her exposed as he was to any number of Irish women with lovely accents and what she could only assume to be natural attractions to American engineers. And so she wrote to Eddie expressing these fears that she was having. And Eddie, the, the dutiful, caring, compassionate fiancé that he was, uh, wrote back to her to try to assuage her fears and uh, said this to Betty. I admit, he wrote, that sometimes I am tempted, as it can be quite lonely here, but I fight it as it is you that I love, and to you I am committed. Yours, Eddie. And soon after his letter back, Eddie received a small package postmarked from his beloved fiancé, and inside of this package were two things, a small letter and a small, sleek, silver harmonica. Might seem a bit strange to you, and it certainly seemed strange to Eddie as he didn't have a musical bone in his body and had never even held a harmonica, let alone played it. And so the investigator that he is, he read the letter to find out just what was going on here. And the letter from Betty read this: It said, I'm sending this to you so that you can learn to play it and have something to take off your mind or take your mind off of those local girls. Yours, Betty. So Eddie, maybe he's still a bit confused, but starting to take the hint, uh, wrote back uh, just a short and sweet note to his beloved and said, thank you, Betty, for the harmonica. I'm practicing on it every night and thinking of you, yours truly, all of the love in the world, Eddie. Now, eventually, this two-year stint came to an end, and the engineer was transferred from Ireland back to his home in Tennessee, and needless to say, he was eager to see the woman that he loved. And so when he finally arrived home and had his first glimpse of Betty, the engineer rushed forward to embrace the woman that he loved, only to be drawn up short as she held out a a, a stalling hand and said to him sternly, Just hold on a minute. Before anything else, let me hear you play that harmonica. We have in this story a, a, a story of tested love, of uncertainty, of doubt a story that could easily be adapted onto the silver screen as this year's hottest romantic comedy. And I'm not a screenwriter, so I don't know exactly how that would play out, but I could see it happening. We have in Judges 4, on the other hand, uh, a story that could be adapted into this summer's action-packed blockbuster with all of the necessary elements, an unlikely hero facing insurmountable odds and opposition, inspiring moments of timely action, military battles, deception, biting social commentary, and a twist ending that nobody would have seen coming and the M. Night Shyamalan would have been proud of. It might seem as if these two stories, one uh, almost a soap opera romantic comedy and one an action-packed thriller, have nothing in common, but as we take a closer look, there's a similar theme that pervades both. The curtain opens on our summer blockbuster with the narrator offering brief prefatory remarks, reminding the audience of just where we are in the story. The left-handed hero from the last movie, Ehud, has died, and with him the, the influence and the leadership over the Israelite people who quickly descend into their old bad habits. And so those who have seen the previous movies once again see those familiar lines, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord a phrase that might have felt as common and introductory as a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and would have whet the appetite for the other phases of a cycle that they have seen play out multiple times. Into whose hands, as a response to this evil, is the Lord going to sell the Israelites? And then, whom will the Lord raise up to deliver those Israelites after they cry out to him? And in this iteration, the oppressor has a familiar name. Jabin, king in Canaan, ruler in Hazor, and his military commander, Sisera. And the stakes are incredibly high. See, for 20 years, Israel has found themselves once again under the thumb of an oppressive regime. And this regime uh, boasts the impressive military might of 900 ironclad chariots. Allow my tone and my emphasis to express just how great a force that would have been. And so it's no surprise that Israel feels no other option in the shadow of this oppressor than to cry out for a higher power for deliverance. What is surprising, at least in its novelty in judges, is that the one positioned as the person God would raise up to deliver Israel is a woman, a prophetess, and a judge by the name of Deborah. In the midst of this deeply patriarchal society, it is Deborah who is chosen to mediate between God and humans, who is endowed with oracular gifts, who settles Israel's disputes, and who is elevated to lead just some of the number of gender roles that are reversed in this account. And despite the surprise that this honeybee is positioned as judge and prophet rather than a man with a mighty name like sword or lion of God like the other previous judges, Deborah is quickly established as worthy of the task God has placed before her. And almost immediately after she is introduced, her prominence and her divinely endowed authority is on clear display as she calls forth Barak and she communicates the certain victory that God is going to provide. The Lord assures his called military leader that he will in fact deliver Sisera's armies into his hands despite this gulf that lay between the power of the oppressed Israelites and their oppressors. And as we read this promise, images of glory and victory might flash in our minds, but those same images must have been blurred and uncertain in the mind of the man who actually received the command. For this victory, which seems to us without qualification, without question, is perceived to be less certain and is received with reluctance and with conditional obedience. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go, is Barack's reply. In other words, I will not go unless I have tangible, visible proof, absolute assurance that God goes with me. And So we read within this story a problem with which many of us are familiar. Despite the demonstrated faithfulness of God and the word given to him, Barak is hesitant to trust that promise and to trust that calling of God. And now in fairness, it was common practice at the time for an army to include prophets as physical intermediaries for a divine presence, but this this clearly was not what was supposed to happen in this instance because instead of of God's promised word uh, through his mouthpiece Deborah alone being sufficient for Barak, because that was insufficient, he would lose the honor he would have otherwise been due And Sisera, the commander of the enemy's armies, rather than being handed over to him, would be given into the hands of some unnamed mystery woman. And like a mirror reflecting back at us, so many of us see ourselves in Barak. We long for God to just give give us a sign, give us some level of absolute certainty that we are going in the right direction, or at least that God goes with us. When God commands us to care for the poor, for the widow, and the orphan, even if it costs us, we want proof and absolute assurance that we are truly acting in obedience to God or that our own security will not be unduly threatened by assisting the vulnerable. When the Holy Spirit prompts us to speak out against injustice, we want absolute proof and assurance that we stand for God's interest and that the risk is not too great, but it's worth taking. When the Holy Spirit stirs within us to step out in faith and share the gospel, we hesitate needing assurance that we will have the right words, the right answers, rather than trusting that it is the Spirit himself who will give us the words. When the daunting decisions of of life lie before us, we often feel the deep need for some visible piece of indisputable evidence that will guarantee success. And when it does not come with a level of clarity and assurance that we desire, we often find ourselves frozen, unwilling, or unable to act. Like Betty not completely convinced that her love has been true. We long and even demand for God to play the proverbial harmonica before we take that first critical step of faith and trust his word. And yet, as we have seen in this judge's narrative, the promised deliverance of the Lord will see its realization. Despite Barak's hesitancy and reluctance, God will reverse the script and he will deliver the oppressor into the hands of the oppressed because even though Barak is going to lose the honor that he was due, God is still going to save his people. And immediately after we hear this conditional response of Barak's obedience, Deborah doesn't miss a beat and agrees to go with him. She at least remains completely assured that God's promised word of deliverance will come to fruition. And in just a handful of verses, the moment of battle begins. And Sisera's gathered men and his vast army of 900 iron-fitted chariots, a force which from any human perspective should have wiped the floor with, the, with Barak's hastily gathered platoon. And if, we ha- if, if what we have learned of Barak's disposition thus far continues to bear itself out, I can only imagine the quivering in his boots that this Canaanite army had caused until once again, it is the certain and it is the assured Deborah, who reminds and encourages the commander, who announces that it's the Lord himself who goes before Israel's forces like a king marching ahead of his army. And she assures him that it would be on that day that all of Sisera's might, all of his power would be left wanting in the face of an almighty God. And sure enough, Sisera's men, his his chariots, they were no match for the power of the advancing army who had the strength of the Lord before them and we get a sentence of the actual battle because it's that certain that God gave them the victory. But to prove his word to be completely true, God allowed Sisera to escape the battle, and Barak is prevented from vanquishing his primary rival. Instead, as I said, God has ordained and declared that the fullness of his word would be fulfilled, and so Israel would be saved, and Sisera would not fall at Barak's hands, but would be given into the hands of a woman. And at this point, we're don't exactly know who that woman is, and so we continue to read. And we see that Sisera has has managed to escape the battle on foot. He's found himself now, though, at the foot of Jael, the wife of a Kenite who is friendly with Sisera's Canaanite kin. And surely he must have thought that this ally's wife sees his perilous situation and will give him shelter from the enemies breathing down his neck. And initially, she seems to do just that. In fact, she exceeds the customary acts of hospitality. She welcomes him in, she offers him the sustenance of milk when all that was asked, was asked for was water, and she gently tucks him into bed. And his guard understandably comes down so quickly that he does not realize that J.L. is, in actuality, an iron fist in a velvet glove. Unaware and unassuming, Sisera closes eyes that will never again open and drifts off to sleep. And in this gruesome and graphic act, the female warrior stands victorious over the conquered, General Hammer still in hand, tent peg fixed firmly into the ground. The villain is vanquished, and the would-be hero, Barak, enters into this final moments of our story as a spectator, while an otherwise unknown and incredibly unlikely character steals the stage. In this providential scene of irony, rather than being, uh, rather than becoming like so many other women of that time who were vulgarly expected to be prizes for Sisera's military victory, J.L. becomes his very undoing. The would-be conquered becomes the conqueror. The spoil of war spoils any hope of returning home, let alone victoriously. And at every step, using and partnering with unlikely characters, God is the one providing deliverance. God is the one pulling the strings, raising up generals, deploying armies, positioning J.L. and her tent, and every political and cultural condition to ensure the demise of Sisera and the deliverance of Israel. And even though this is the third time already in the book of Judges that God's people have rejected him and done evil in his eyes, he will not give up on them. Even though the one that he has raised to deliver will not fully trust him, even then he will not give up, but he will use the unlikely, the unexpected, the ones deemed insufficient to the task to deliver his people. And in this case, the deliverer is doubly unlikely. Israel's enemy is sold into the hands of a non-Israelite who is also a woman. A woman who is married to a man allied with Israel's nemesis, Jabin a woman who, as far as we can tell, stood to gain absolutely nothing from her actions. Not Barak, not the, the male Israelite who God initially promised victory, not the one who would have amassed great honor had he fully embraced his call from God. No, instead, God follows through on his promise made to Deborah in unexpected and unlikely ways, demonstrating his sovereignty and his faithfulness. In every way and at every step, the Lord is demonstrating this faithfulness. God is revealing himself as one who is so faithful that Deborah's full confidence, her complete assurance that God will come through despite insurmountable odds based solely on his word is far from foolish, but is the most rational, reasonable thing. And though our modern sensibilities may align more closely with Barak, who demands the presence of, of God's prophet Deborah with him in battle as this tangible assurance, it is Deborah who demonstrates true genuine faith, who unwaveringly trusts God's word, who trusts that what he has spoken to her will come to fruition, that his promises are true. And in the end, she is certainly not left disappointed. And if Deborah might be unwaveringly confident in the faithful deliverance of the Lord, how much more ought we to be confident and assured since we not only have the written word of God revealed to us, but we have the incarnate word, the fullest, most perfect demonstration of God's faithful deliverance. For if God would not withhold even his son from us, how much more should we be able to trust him for the lesser things? And so when those moments of life come when we are confronted with the opportunity to live out our calling from God, to stand for his kingdom, to trust the guidance of his spirit and the truth of his word, the doubt and reluctance that might come up naturally is ultimately unfounded. His word alone is sufficient for all of life and godliness, and we are not given a spirit of deception but of truth. We're not guaranteed uh, or or, or promised success in every area of life, nor that our lives are going to be without pain or hardship, quite the contrary. We're not promised complete clarity in every step uh, and at every moment, but we are promised that he will be with us always to the very end of the age. We are promised the spirit who strengthens, guides, encourages, and comforts. We do not look with hope and expectation to a human with with faults and with a propensity to fail or be unfaithful. We're not a fiancé waiting for an engineer to return home from Ireland unsure of his faithfulness and needing a palpable assurance of a skillfully crafted tune on a harmonica. We are the bride of a perfect and spotless bridegroom who is ever faithful, who has given us his spirit, and who will not deceive or abandon, but whose promises are true. Let's pray together. Faithful God and Father, we thank and praise you this morning for your word, that you have chosen to reveal yourself. We thank you for your faithfulness, that the God of the universe would be so full of love that he would willingly give himself for those who are as enemies. Teach us, Lord, to trust in your unfailing love, to follow your call as active citizens of your kingdom, to will what you will, to desire what you desire. And may we be filled with your spirit to the glory of the almighty faithful King of kings. And it is in the faithful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.